Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 91. I'm your host, Dan Holzman. Today's special guest is talented theatrical juggler, Lindsay Benner. Before I talk to Lindsay, let's thank our sponsor, the IJA, International Jugglers Association. Information about this great group of jugglers can be found at juggle.org. Check out my toy, The Ring Dama, at flowtoys.com and my book, Alex the Great, at amazon.com. Now sit back, drop everything, get ready to listen to Lindsay Benner. Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 91, my special guest, Lindsay Benner. Hi, Lindsay. Hi. Now, it's been a while since I've seen you. You've been down in Los Angeles. And how are you coping uh, during this time of COVID? That's a big question. <laughs> uh, day by day, certainly. It's been such a, a wild time. <laughs> I don't even know what to say about it. It's been so wild. But um, I'm feeling very grateful that I have a, a lovely home to be in. And I have beautiful children to hang out with. And I've got some help with the children during the days at times, which is essential. And I've got uh, just a, a lovely mother to hang out with as well. And uh, just a lot to be grateful for. So your baby boy Cosmo was born uh, November 14th, 2019. Good Lord. You have great research. Yes. We have true. an incredible staff here. <laughs> now, let me ask you, did you perform while you were pregnant? Did you juggle while you were pregnant? And what yes. was that experience like? Yes. When I was pregnant with my first son, Poe, I found out a week before I did my first Women in Vaudeville, which was just going to be a one-off show. And then it went so well and was so well received that we did it. We decided to do it monthly. And so I literally, every month, I was one month bigger <laughs> when we did my show. And it was just so fun. I partnered with the Bob Baker Marionette Theater, which is this lovely puppet theater in Los Angeles. It's quite the, the Los Angeles institution. And it's so family oriented. And so it was it was a really beautiful synchronistic thing that I here I was starting a family and and starting this show at the same time. And I took a, a couple months off after I had Poe. And then I had a Mother's Day show with him in it. That was really fun. And then when I got pregnant with Cosmo, I, I did it again. We, <laughs> I, I did shows while pregnant and I had already had all my maternity wear. So it recycled some of it. I found it to be a really wonderful integration to juggle while pregnant. There certainly was no, for me, other than, sure, it was a little harder to move around when I was really big. But other than that, it wasn't harder to juggle while I was pregnant by any means. Now, is there a connection between the two names, between Poe and Cosmo? Poe is short for poesis, which is a Greek word. It has a lot of different meanings, but I chose it because my mother's a, a philosopher and she based a lot of her work on Heidegger. And so I ended up being in this movie about, it's called Being in the World, and it's about this uh, Heideggerian philosophy professor. And he said this word poesis, uh, based in Heidegger philosophy, but it's like the energy that causes a flower to bloom or uh, a butterfly to come out of the cocoon. It's like this forward motion on the planet. And I thought, oh, that'd be a nice name for a child, because that's essentially what they are, moving things forward. So that's his name. And then Cosmo was just, I don't know. I just thought, who who wouldn't like a Cosmo? Yeah, it's a great name, too. We had a, a performer here, Cosmo Hume, ah. uh, passed away recently, I think last year, and uh, a much beloved member of our, our family up here, our performing mm -hmm. family. 
The word vaudeville seems to come up a lot in your career and your life. Was vaudeville the, the first interest? How you got into juggling? How did the love of vaudeville start? I'd say the love of vaudeville, without me being aware of it, started with my obsession with the Muppets. And I think that's where I got most of my vaudeville training, that and Animaniacs, which I didn't really understand. You know, I was quite a TV baby, so I watched a lot of TV and I got a lot of my vaudeville education from Animaniacs and from The Muppet Show. I'd say that's where like that was instilled in my DNA as a young child. And I didn't even realize it until I was rewatching some of the Animaniacs. And, and I actually I didn't really con- consider that The Muppet Show was a variety show. It was just for me, it was just The Muppet Show. I'd never seen a variety show. So for me, The Muppet Show was just The Muppet Show. Right. But then as I got more involved in juggling and performing juggling and I started getting aware of what a variety show was and what a European variety show was, I started realizing, oh, my gosh, this is what The Muppet Show was modeled after. I didn't even I didn't even put those dots together until really later, much later. But I'd say that's where my love of vaudeville was implanted. And then when I started street performing and I started learning about the modern era of entertainment with the variety arts, I I learned a lot from knowing Frank Olivier when I was 16. I used to go to his amazing place. It was like this converted firehouse. First, he he lived in this beautiful big warehouse and I, I would go there with our friends and house, they were house sitting for him. And so I got to like step inside this world of how it could be possible to be an adult mm-hmm. with a bungee trapeze in the living room. And and he had this really great collection of old videos. I basically would just sit there and watch all of his video, his VHS collection of Bill Irwin's Regard of Flight, which I had never seen. And I just, I, I was so taken by that. And Michael Davis and his old acts and you know, I just was able to get an education from these VHS tapes about what, what was going on in the variety world at the time. And I was very influenced by that as well. Now, you've been called the love child of Lucille Ball and Charlie <laughs> Chaplin. Yeah. So were you also interested in the older performers and old movies? Did they uh, give you some inspiration? Yeah, I would. You know, when I first set out to do my show, I was thinking I would love to do a live show that was kind of like a silent movie. And so I wanted to have it have chapters and have these sort of vignettes, right? Like they do in old movies. And I also, I am a very story oriented creator. So it's hard for me to do something just for the sake of doing it. I like to have it somehow threaded into a story. So I got a lot from watching I, of course, I watched a ton of Lucille Ball, I Love Lucy, and Carol Burnett Show, and Charlie Chaplin, and Buster Keaton, and all that, all that good stuff. I started getting really interested in that sort of variety world, and I think I got the impression that you must know (laughs) all of those characters intimately in order to have the full breadth of knowledge that you need to move forward. I had really, uh, when I set out to do my show, I, I modeled it after a silent movie. Well, you talk about Frankie Olivia, and he's, he's quite a character. You also sort of talk <laughs> about this idea of not growing up, of being able to <laughs> play and be a child, be childlike your whole life, which is uh, mm-hmm. one of Frankie's characteristics. As a child, <laughs> were you, uh, did you have other dreams of growing up to be in the normal world? And uh, when did you get involved in the acting and in the theater in, in the first place? When I was in high school, I, I really had a tough time 
with school. I, it was every period was like, it was really difficult for me to get to get through it. And um, I got by with okay grades, but I'd say when I would really come alive and do extra credit and pay extra, extra attention and just feel I like I never wanted it to end was when I was in my theater arts class or when I was in play practice after school. So I think that gave me this understanding that whatever I did, it had to be within the context of performing. And that's why I ended up getting a BFA in acting because anything else didn't make sense. And I've heard that, or I've read that, you know, if, if you can do anything else, then you should do it. <laughs> and I, I think that's true. Well, it's certainly not an easy life. It's not an easy profession. No. You have to certainly have a passion for it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's how I felt about it. I've always felt like if I could do something else, I would. And I'm certainly in this time of pandemic and, you know, not having my normal outlets available to me. I'm reevaluating how I make money and how I'm going to move forward. But certainly it's always been the only thing that made sense for me to do. And what age did you learn to juggle? And do you remember who taught you and, and how you learned? Yeah, I, I remember learning at a birthday party when I was 12 with one of those klutz books. I took to it fairly quickly. And then uh, I think it was really, I got a lot more into it um, when I was 17. I was a senior in high school and I was like highly hormonal and wanted to find some way to like connect with boys. And <laughs> I think that this was my weird attempt. Like I just, I remember having this deep desire to have a boyfriend and I was so tall. It was, was not on the table for me until I was much older. So I was just always trying to impress people and, and, and impress boys. And I wanted, I wanted them to like me. And so I just remember that being this driving force to learn more tricks. Cause I thought that that would do it. But that, uh, that, as I realized now, that was not, not exactly the, uh, the most strategically <laughs> fruitful way to, to go about things. But I don't know if juggling has ever been the, the greatest tool to attract the opposite sex. No, I know. But you know what I find is sweet is that, you know, no matter who I talk to, like they all, I mean, maybe some people didn't, but it's fun when I hear other people like Michael Rayner came up to me after I, I had talked about that and I tried to do an act about it. And um, he came up to me and he said, oh my gosh, that's the whole reason I learned to juggle. I like, I, I had a big crush on my neighbor and I thought if I juggled in the backyard that she would love me, <laughs> you know? And I'm like, yes, why are we, we're all, we all have whatever that thing is in our brain or system. Like we have that weird you know we're like this will do it and it's no no it won't do you ever attend any uh juggling festivals or conventions when you were just a beginner no i was too shy to do that <laughs> i was a little too shy to do that i did join the juggling club in college that was the thing that i did and that's how i learned how to juggle torches uh because there was this big puppet show that they did as a as a graduate student did this big one off puppet show where it was about Dr. Faust and the fires of hell came out as these fire jugglers and so the juggling club got to you know buy all these cool juggling torches and we all learned how to juggle torches and we came out and we lit Faust on fire and it was this huge bonfire it was really awesome you ever done a burning man that sounds kind of like a burning man type of thing Right. Yeah, it does kind of have. A, yes, I, I in fact, I was married to a big Burning Man artist and uh, have gone six times. Oh, so, yeah. What, what's the What's the juggling scene out there? Is it something that's sort of a certain camp or you just see jugglers or fire artists or is that not what it's about? 
I'd say they're more of like, like the things that do well at Burning Man are like um, flow arts are well received there. It's they're kind of more of like ambient juggling is what's uh, preferred there. They do have performances and such, but it's a lot more like Cirque like in their nature. They're not very vaudeville oriented, not very like you kind of need to have a lot of focus and beginning, middle, end. It's more like big production looking things or just like on the side of, you know, they're more like poi spinning and fire and that kind of thing. Now, I've never been there, but I think it would be hard to do comedy. I picture a lot of people <laughs> tripping on Molly. Exactly. Yeah. No, <laughs> it's, that... it's not a, it's not a, it's not a comedy, uh, gotcha. comedy uh, festival. <laughs> Now, um, that we've had some some issues before this last month, so obviously for a long time, but it sort of came to the forefront of sort of being a woman in the variety arts. Mm. Now, when you were starting out, did you find men helpful? Did you find them only helpful because they wanted something like a date? What was your experience <laughs> with people starting out and did you have any mentors? Yeah, I mean, when I first started out, I was in San Francisco and I just graduated from college as an actor and I had that bit of juggling. No, I was part of the juggling club. So I was an all right juggler, but I was still very amateur. And I, you know, I was like trying, I was very lost. I was trying to figure out what I was going to do. And an old family friend of mine, Pete Sweet, he and I started dating at that time and he was street performing for a living. And that's sort of how I got into street performing is I thought, well, I could, <laughs> I'd actually I'd signed up for this master's program in physical theater in France. I, d I don't know what I was thinking, but I think mm -hmm. I was having that like post-college, what the hell do I do with myself kind of fear that I was, I didn't know what to do. And so I was signed up for that. And then Peter and I got together and I didn't want to go because I wanted to stay and be with him. And he said, well, you know, you should learn how to street perform. You can, you know, but I, because I, I was like, I can't just stay here for a dude. I got to. I have to be growing. I have to be pursuing my career. I have to be. And you're talking about in, in San Francisco. Yeah, this was in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. My parents lived in Berkeley. So I had returned home and was trying to figure out what I was doing next. And then I, you know, I was going to go do this, this training program in, in France. And then I fell in love with Peter and I was like, all right, well, I guess I'll try street performing. And like that, I think, cemented my career in the direction of variety arts. I had worked in the regional theater system in the Bay Area a bunch and done quite well, but I was very frustrated with the uh, equity system because I was already ready to be an equity actor, but I was too young to get cast as an equity actor. So I kept losing these opportunities that I felt like I was professionally ready for, but they weren't able to pay me properly for it. So I when I started street performing, I saw this whole other world that I could follow where it gave me a lot of freedom and autonomy that I didn't have as an actor. And I really liked that. I liked having that. I liked being a, a part of the creative process from top to bottom. And that's something that you were as a street performer. It was like ever you did everything. You gathered the crowd. You were your, te your own technician, your own booker, your own you know, you were everything from top to bottom. So that was a really liberating experience. Yeah, I'm really grateful that that happened. And for the for the non-theater buffs, the non-actors, not like you and I, of course, are trained actors, could you <laughs> explain what equity versus non-equity means when it comes to the theater? 
So equity is it's basically union versus non-union. So it's professional theater. Most professional theaters, uh, they're union actors. And so in order to become a union actor, you've got to become part of the system and you've got to earn equity points. And I went to a college that had an equity theater on campus. So I got all the equity points that I needed in order to join equity and become a professional. I got them in college and I thought that was going to be this great thing. And then when I got out of college and I started trying to work, or I started working in the regional theater scene, I found out very quickly that the young female roles were always, they had a certain amount of equity members that they would pay for as the the older equity members. They would allot the young characters in the plays as their non-equity actors. Mm. So I, I kept having to get permission from equity to do these shows where I wasn't paid an equity wage. And... That just started getting very frustrating after the first two years of doing that and losing some roles because of that. I just got so frustrated. Was it in college where you studied the, the Suzuki acting technique? And could you tell me what that is? It sound, is it says something about a forceful physical discipline. So yeah. what, explain what that is, please. Suzuki acti- acting. Suzuki acting technique. So this is, it's based in some principles of no theater and uh, kabuki and but it it was I think it was created in like 60s 70s and it's very it's all it's a physical acting technique where it's best for like Greek theater and Shakespeare like really big emotions and the actors are literally speaking from this place of conflict and drama within their own bodies And they do that by doing these positions where you are in in a squat-like position, but your heels are up, so you feel extra burning in your legs. And then you have a completely relaxed upper torso. And And that sort of intense pain in your legs and then the relaxation in your upper body meets at your, you know, in your core. And that's where you speak from. And so that is very, it's these like, you're speaking these really guttural, intense, dramatic, real emotions that are coming from your body. They're not coming from sort of your, you're not like painting an idea of what this character is thinking and then speaking through that idea that you have, you're really embodying an experience. It was so cool because I got a lot of strength in my legs and I got a lot of, there, there's also this in, emphasis on having these very clean stops. So this teacher will take a big stick and they'll hit the stick on the floor and you'll have to hit a pose. You have to go very quickly into a pose and it's just whatever pose, you know, you kind of burst into this pose and you do also some, sometimes you also do it on the floor and you use your stomach muscles. So all of that was this very dramatic, very uh, physically intense work that got me very, um, got my body very honed in on how to, how to have a lot of power when you're really still. I, I'm, I'm very grateful that I had that, that kind of training because I think it, it shows up in my work in ways that I'm not conscious of, but it comes out. And I think that it adds to what I've got going on. Well, certainly street performing is very physical. Mm. Uh, did you feel you incorporated that? And where did you start? Did you start like at Pier 39? And were you ever teamed up with Pete? Or did you always do a solo? I always did solo and I started not on Pier 39. I started at the at Pier 41. There's that little cobblestone um, circle. This was in 2003. So this was like, I don't know, I feel like it might have been like a heyday of solo street performers at that time. 
because there it was really chaos theory out there at that time. It was like everybody just kind of figured out how to share the space because it was a really amazing space for street performing. I mean, it was right across from the Alcatraz ticket booth and it was just this perfect circle that was already there and it was right by a stoplight. So people were walking by all the time and we would show up at five and draw numbers out of a hat. And then whoever got the first show would have to make sure that the, all of the silver guys were out of the way and that the, that the steel drum bands stopped playing. And it was a really an incredible learning experience in terms of, you know, negotiating with people and, and showing up every day and getting respect from showing up every day and just being being present did a lot. And what kind of a skills were you doing? What kind, were you doing mostly juggling or did you incorporate magic? What was your act like in the very beginning? In the very beginning, so I, I did juggling primarily and I did the, uh, <laughs> they they call it the girl finale, although I've seen uh, more guys do it than girls, but it's the, the, you get two volunteers to stand opposite each other and you stand on their their hand, they're like, they're, they cross their arms and you stand on their arms and then you juggle fire. And that's the finale. So I, I said to my friend, David Birnbaum, I was like, I, you know, I don't think I have enough skill to do a street show. And he said, well, can you juggle fire? And I said, yeah. And he's like, well, you have a finale. That's all you need. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. I was just talking to Al Miller. He said, two acts. All you need are like two routines. And uh, that's what you really want on the street. Sure. Yeah. And I had, um, you know, like I juggled well enough so that I think it, it was, imp- you know, I wasn't a great juggle. I couldn't juggle five balls at the time, but I, I could juggle four balls and I could juggle three balls in a really beautiful way and a you know unique way that I think was impressive um, to people who weren't jugglers. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I, yeah, I put together a bit, like, I think from the very beginning, I worked with volunteers a lot because I, I learned that that um, drew people in um, even more. And so I did a lot of volunteer work. Um, my very first street show, (laughs) I, I got the best advice, um, from Peter. Uh, He said, you know, your first week street performing, if you draw a crowd, it doesn't matter if you lose them. If you, if you build an edge, then you've won the day. It doesn't matter if, if they, if you lose them and and they never come back and you don't do, you don't finish your act. If you, all you got to focus on is just getting an edge to show up. And that really set up my expectations in a really great way because I, I when I lost my edge, you know, I, I got my edge and then I lost them immediately because I didn't know what I was doing, but I didn't get, get discouraged by that. I just thought, okay, I did it. <laughs> I did my thing. I lost them because I yelled at them and I was very aggressive because that's what worked for these other guys who are on the pitch. You know, they would yell and people would be like, oh, this is great. I love this guy is yelling at me. This is awesome. But when I was yelling at them, they didn't like it at all. I, I don't know. I, I can't psychologically tell you why that is, but they they didn't like it. They didn't like to hear me yell. I shifted my entire approach the second day that I street performed and I became a washwoman, so I like lowered my status, and I I I got this like bucket and uh, and with water in it and a, and like a squirt bottle and a rag. And I one of the biggest challenges in my experience, I think street performers would agree, especially when you're on the street street, is getting people to stand where you want them to stand because people just don't really want to commit to something that they don't know what they're committing to. So. Crowd control was a, is a huge piece of the puzzle um, when you're learning to street perform. So 
that was what I was really struggling with on my very first street show. And so the second day when I showed up, I was like, okay, I'm a washerwoman and I'm going to wash where I want them to stand. And that worked. It was amazing. (laughs) (laughs) And I just changed my whole persona. I got super sweet, super feminine and people were drawn in and interested. And so I was like, oh, okay, cool. What's weird is that I didn't, because I was so prepared for not keeping my audience, I hadn't really fully practiced my finale because <laughs> I'm an idiot. Uh, but I, I, I was very uh, shy at the time. So I felt really bad asking guys to let me stand on them and juggle torches. So I had stood on top of two guys and I had juggled torches, but I'd never done it all together. And I thought, well, I'm not going to get to the finale mm-hmm. anyway. Right. So it doesn't matter. I'll just, I'll ask them tomorrow. And I was just very timid. So I just felt really bad asking anybody for anything at the time. So I had restructured the show, my second street show, and it was flipping working. I got a full crowd and they were having fun and they were laughing. And I was like, holy shit. Oh my God. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. And then I got to the finale and I was like, uh, I guess, I guess we're doing this now because <laughs> I, I had never done it before. And so I was like, uh, you know, that, I mean, you know, when people pretend like they don't know what they're doing and it's hilarious, I actually didn't know what I was doing and it was hilarious. And I, I got up there and I, I tried to juggle them and I dropped them cause I was flipping out. And then I was like, dude, let's pass it back. And they <laughs> back to me and I juggled them and I, I like barely caught it, but I flipping caught it. And I was like, yes. And everyone applauded and I got down and I made 40 bucks. And whereas the day before I didn't even, I hadn't, right. I, I couldn't beat the crowd. So that was a huge triumph for me. And I think that sense of accomplishments and reworking something so that it went from, a total disaster to like, oh my God, it worked. And I made some money. And I mean, and then on the, on my fourth show, I made like a hundred bucks in the show. I was like, what? (laughs) This is, this is a whole new world. You know, like, this is crazy. I think all of my acting training and all of my performing training really came in handy in terms of just knowing how to be really present. And I didn't have a mic either. So I was using my voice and I was a Suzuki trained actor, so that I'm used to to really using my voice. So I never really lost my voice or anything. I, I was able to uh, project until I got a mic, and then now I would probably lose my voice. But now, I, when I was out at the pier, I always remember you in a very eye catching red dress. Yes. When did that? Because that was something that I thought, wow, that's because you want to say you want to attract attention. Sure. And uh, you certainly played up that part of it, you know, being visible and sort of standing out. When did you yeah. uh, start wearing that, that red dress? I always wore a red dress. Oh, okay. <laughs> I always, you I was a washerwoman or? Yeah. I had, <laughs> this, I had this magical dress. It was a handmade dress. I got it at a garage sale. It must have been made for a dancer because it was this like sleek red dress. I could move in it. I could, you know, I would wear these wool tights so that no, that if sure. I did, if anybody saw my dress, it wasn't a problem. But like I... Yeah, I always wore a red dress, I guess. I mean, red is something that pops and it it catches attention. And I think later when the show became, had a, became the book of love, it seemed red was a great color for love. And so I just kind of always stuck with the red dress thing because it is, it's very eye-catching and I don't know, there's, you know, 
lady in red. There's always, there's. <laughs> well, let's talk about this, the book of love, because uh, when I also, when we were working together out at the pier, I forget exactly what year that was. Mm. Like maybe eight or nine years ago or something like yep. that. It's been a minute. And it was an unusual choice because like you said, most street acts, uh, they're basically guys yelling at you. Yeah. You know, telling you what you do. And very few of them have brought in any kind of theatricality. And certainly you can understand like as you moved into the theaters, but you actually made it work on the street. When did you decide to sort of make that a, a feature of your street act? When I moved down to LA and I wasn't street performing down here and I was trying to make it as an actor again, uh, you know, in film and television, and that was not really working and I wasn't really doing much. So I was trying to figure out something to do with myself. A friends of mine were getting married and they, you know, I had that, like, I really want to do a, sh a silent indoor silent act inspired by, I mean, I was so inspired by Bill Irwin when I was younger and I saw him live a few times at ACT and I just, you know, I was, I just really want to do something that's in that category of silent comedy. Cause that's, that's what really, really gets me excited. So I thought, okay, well, I'm here. I might as well try and make something like that. So I did, I put this thing together for my friend's wedding and I performed it there. And someone who was attending the wedding said, Hey, we do burlesque shows. That would go really well at a burlesque show. And I was like, okay. And so I went and performed, I put it together in a different format, sort of like made it more, you know, I had just had like cards on a music stand. And then my boyfriend at the time came up with, he's like, it should be a book. You know, you should have just this big book. And I was like, yeah, that's a good idea. So I put together this book and it was like, oh, this is a book of love. And every chapter of the book is another stage of the relationship. And it's another juggling act. And that just, it just worked so well. And it was so fun. And it was a silent act. And I did, it was like a 15 minute silent act that I did in these burlesque shows. And I loved doing it so much. And it was so successful. People really, you know, it was like the kind of thing that was so fun to do because the, the, the bar would be crowded and people would be talking and I would come on stage and everyone would shut up and watch me. And it was so such a powerful moment, <laughs> you know, as a street performer, I got some opportunities before I was really ready for them because I was a woman. I think I had three years of experience street performing in San Francisco. And then I got Christchurch, New Zealand World Buskers Festival. And that was like most people there had at least 10 years of experience under their belt. And it was like me and these two other girls who had one year of experience under their belt. I was used to I, I was kind of used to sucking most of the time and not <laughs> being that good and being thought of as like, all right, she's all right for a girl. I didn't feel like a powerful entertainer. But then at this with the book of love and the silent act, I felt like, oh, I'm somebody. I got something here. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not just good for a girl anymore. Let's talk a little bit about the, the burlesque theater scene, because it's another another area I've never really uh, been involved in. As a, as a woman, do you think that's an easier entry into burlesque that there's like the, like the percentage of female performers are, are greater. Uh, what are the pros and cons of sort of, if you're a, a beginning female performer of starting out in burlesque? It's a stage for me. It was just, it was a stage. It was an opportunity. People were producing a lot of burlesque shows in Los Angeles at the time. I'm, I'm sure they still would if, if it weren't for the pandemic, but I think especially at the time people were producing a lot of shows and in terms of stage time, just getting an opportunity to get in front of an audience and try stuff out and get experience. I couldn't quite do that at stand-up comedy shows yet. I, or that wasn't really 
as available to me. I have done some stand-up venues and they they love the Book of Love, which is really fun. I, I didn't really think of it as a strategic like, oh, this girls, you know, it was sure. more just like, oh, okay, yeah, that variety fits, you know, they need a variety act to sort of break it up. They're usually, there's just the most sweet audiences, you know, like they're very nice and I was used to the street, so... <laughs> anything was was nicer <laughs> and speaking of tough audiences i see that you you, you did a, your own show you toured with it and yeah. you did, a, you did a, a stint in edinburgh at the edinburgh street festival i always i found that a very difficult place to work for me and my partner what was your experience like in edinburgh oh it was brutal it was brutal and you were doing the book of love show there i was doing my my full length silent book of love show which i was really proud of I mean, there were elements that I wasn't proud of, but I was mostly proud of it. That was what I had toured in the college market. And I just really wanted to share it. And I just thought, well, I'd love to work in Europe more. And that might be a great way to get to know people in Europe. And but there's just there's 4000 shows and everybody's trying to get you to come to their show. And how do you get people to come to your show? You know, I didn't know what I was doing either. (laughs) I never participated in a fringe show. And I just thought, oh, I'll go to. I'll go to the Edinburgh Fringe for my first time produce, self-producing a Fringe show. This will be great. <laughs> Honestly, I think I did it because I knew that I was wanting to become a mother. And I thought I better do this before I have children. Because if I have children and I've never done it, then I'll always wonder what it was like. And so now I'm glad I know. <laughs> it's, it's tough to make money. It's tough to, like you say, to bring an audience. Yeah, I, I did a big fundraiser before I went on uh, Kickstarter just to give me a little bit of a boost because I knew it was going to cost more than it was going to give. But also, like, I had made this commitment. I really don't like street performing. And, you know, I did it for 10 years and I got to a certain point where I was at this really big, beautiful festival in Canada and I was just hating it. <laughs> I was like, you can't do this and keep hating it. This isn't that's not okay. I was just so grumpy about it. And I'm like, I don't want to be that person. I want to be excited about what I'm doing. So what was what was the worst part for you? Was it the, the being away from home? What did what, you find so uh, unpleasant about it? The actual street performing, getting people who are not geared to see your show, right? getting them geared up to see your show. I, it's just the structure that you have to have as a street performer. I don't enjoy that. I want them to be excited to be sitting they've planned ahead they're sitting in a seat to see you and we've we've already made the agreement i'm not trying to coerce you like that's already done i can because for me i don't know psychologically i struggle with am i being annoying is this bothering you (laughs) so street performing just constantly challenged my that very like there would be times when i was about to go to do a street show and i'm like you know, every time I was about to go do a street show, I would get an upset stomach. And it just because it was having to challenge this part of me that felt I was bothering people. And what if they don't like me? And what if they this? And what if they that? And what if it goes wrong? What if I'm bad? And I always was a little sick about it. And so I got to a certain point, even when I was doing okay at it, I never really worked hard enough at it to be really good at it because I didn't like it. So I got to a certain point where I just had to be real with myself and say, look, you don't like this. That's why you're not proud of what you're doing. Stop doing it. Just because you can doesn't mean you have to, which is very difficult for other street performers to accept 
when I tell that to them. <laughs> like when I was in Edinburgh and I was like, I'm not street performing. And I was living in a in, in an apartment with a few other street performers. They right. were all like, what are you doing? Why are you not street performing? Like this is, that is so stupid. I'm like, there are plenty of entertainers here who don't street perform when they're at Edinburgh. Just leave me alone. <laughs> like I hate it. Well, that's one of the things that you did to really kind of bring a crowd is you had to street perform yeah. to then pitch your show in the theater, Yeah. which is another strange way of saying, you're seeing me now, but wait till you see me in the theater. I'm much better. <laughs> and the problem for me with that too, is that I had taken what I, to sort of come back around to that question, like I had taken what I did in the book of love, the silent show that I was super proud of. And I kind of morphed it into a talking version for the street that ended up working really well for the street. And it was very unique. There was a story and that whole thing that you need to do in street performance where you're saying, Hey, and in a few minutes, I'm going to X, Y, and Z. Sure. Stick around to the end. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't have to do that anymore because I had this book that was on chapter one. So clearly <laughs> right. there's going to be a chapter two and I didn't need to say a word. It felt like being um, a hitman, <laughs> and like, you know, you start with a sniper and the sniper is like, in a minute, I'm going to, in a minute, I'm going to, you know, but then you get better and better to the point where it's already, it's like in the show that you're watching and you're not even aware of it, but you're constantly aware of like, oh, so I'm curious what's, what's next. And I think that actually became a really important part of my learning and creating a variety act. Not that it had to be like a street show, but if you can always get the audience questioning what's about to happen or like curious or like they're coming up with their own solutions and they want to see where it goes, like that is that is such an engaging way to create material and to involve the audience. Well, let's flip around a little bit. Let's try a different venue where obviously you did very well because you were up for an award that that really no, I don't think any other juggler has been up for. Let's talk a little bit about the Magic Castle and your experience yeah. working there. Uh, when did you first work there and, and how did you get in there? It's not, not easy to get. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I was living in LA and I was doing the burlesque shows and one of the producers of the burlesque show, Brian Glicker, he was good friends with Max Maven and he just loved my act. And he said, Max, you've got to, you've got to have, he invited me to the castle and I brought my friend and we had an amazing time. Oh my God, I loved it. It was every little girl fantasy I'd ever had about a place that you could go when you're a grown up. It was just like, you can wear feathers in your hair and it's not too dressed up. That was so fun and theaters all over the place and it's choose your own adventure. And it was just, I just loved it as a club and, a, and an entertainment venue. It was so unique to anything I'd ever been to in the United States. You know, when I first heard about it, I thought it was like Magic Mountain or something to do with Disney. And then they were like, no, no, it's this club. And I said, oh, okay, yeah, sure, I'll go. The first time I went, I curled my hair for the first time I ever. <laughs> so it's this like beginning of this like really fun dress up element of my life. Um, I'd been kind of more of like a bit more hippie before that. But then the Magic Castle sort of brought in this whole glamour element that I really enjoyed. So I met Max Maven and he, he actually... Actually, I sent him my street performer pro promo video and he said, all right, well, we'll book you before he had ever seen Book of Love. And then he saw Book of Love and he was like, oh, my gosh, they're going to love you. And I had my first week at the castle and it was just the most incredible experience. Like I just had died and gone to heaven. My show works perfectly in that uh, venue it's so different from anything that they see there, but it's the thing with magic is that they're, they are also very story heavy. And so my tendency to 
create things that are very connected to a story, even with variety, worked super well with their sensibilities and what they enjoyed as magicians and magician creators. So yeah, I had the most incredible time there and everybody just loved it. And again, after coming from being kind of a mediocre street performer <laughs> to be loved and adored at this club that I thought was just the coolest place to be ever was it was it was and it remains every time I perform there it has never gotten old for me I love it so much it's like if I could just find a place and do that every week forever that would be <laughs> my top pride and that would be my top choice of life but only twice a year I get to live my dream. Still, twice a year is, means that they like you. That's uh, Twice a year is pretty good, yeah. To, to come back consistently year after year means you're yeah. doing something right. And what was the award you were nominated for? It uh, It was Stage Magician of the Year. And I right. think they, they might have even changed the... Yeah, it's been this whole saga with... Because <laughs> they will vote for me. And I think one year... I've never gotten vo- nominated. But one year I got like really close to being nominated. So they made a a rule, they called it the Lindsay Benner rule, that you can't be nominated for this award if you're not a magician. Oh, okay. (laughs) Which I was so, I was like, can I guess, can I just get a little plaque that says that? (laughs) Yeah, I would have gotten it if I, but I'm I'm a juggler. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, to be honest, like, I don't know if I ever need to win that award. I've been nominated for it twice now, two years in a row. And if I could just be nominated so I can go to the awards ceremony and dress up and see everybody. And I'm happy with that. I don't need to win it at all. It's been such an incredible community to be a part of. And I've felt so loved and appreciated and lifted up by them. So I love it there. Let's talk about another venue that I've never done. I think it opened up after I'd already moved to the Bay Area. What is the Brookledge Theater? Is it associated with the Magic Castle? It is a private residence theater that was the childhood residence of the founders of the Magic Castle, the brothers Bill and Milt Larson. And it now is owned by their uh, Bill's daughter, Erica Larson. And she has been putting on shows at that theater to sort of liven it up. It used to be a place that was before the Magic Castle was started by Bill and Milt and Irene Larson. Bill's uh, wife, Irene Larson, was also a a huge player in in creating the castle and making it the amazing place that it is. They would have parties there and they would talk about, oh, wouldn't it be cool to have a club? And it had this private theater that was built by a magician who built props. And this was like this theater that he would show off these illusion props to other magicians. And it was this real hub of a place. I think it was um, there is the name of the magician and prop builder. And so it was this like, it's just this legendary, super authentic magic historical space. And it's got this beautiful garden. You, You enter through the side and you go in the back and there's this incredible Victorian style theater. And Erica has been putting on these incredible shows. She has, because she grew up around magic, she has the, the most incredible taste in entertainment. It's always very wacky and and kind of odd and just f- lots of great magic too. But it's like, she's got all these like really interesting friends from growing up being the, the daughter of, of one of the founders of Magic Castle. So it's just this like hub of ver- the variety arts in Los Angeles and people who pass through perform there sometimes. And it's often a, a star-studded Hollywood, like Gina Davis in the front <laughs> row and that kind of stuff. Right, so right. it's very exciting for the performers. It's very exciting for the the pay, the people who come. It's all invite only. It's it's all very um, 
hush hush and just kind of like whoever got a lucky invite from Erica is the people who show up and yeah, it's, it's kind of informal, but formal. It's, it's, it's a very special, very, very special thing. Sounds high class. <laughs> the problem with Los Angeles variety world is that there is, it is so saturated with entertainers yeah. that most performance venues don't pay much. And that's what I learned as an actor when I first got here is that if you wanted to be part of an improv group, you had to pay a monthly fee to rent the theater that you guys performed at. And I was like, you what? No, I get, I get paid to perform. I don't pay to perform. And it became this like, oh my gosh, this is a whole different system. And I, I ended up, I lived in LA, but I made most of my money outside of LA. Well, look at like even the Comedy and Magic Club, beautiful club, oh, but yeah. you're not going to get rich playing there. No, but you, you will get fat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the and you'll see some amazing, some amazing comics. Here's yeah. kind of a strange question from a, a juggling podcast, but if you had to mention two magicians that you saw live, who do you think was the, the ones that made the biggest impression on you? Michael Carbonaro, huge impression. Uh, Eugene Berger, who's no longer with us, also huge impression. And I got to see both of them perform together, mm. which was amazing. Nice. Yeah. Well, let's talk about some of your acts that, that you perform. Uh, yeah, some very interesting ones. Uh, so I'll list a few and maybe you can describe them for me. What is plate dropping? I know plate juggling, but your act is plate dropping. Yeah, it's not one of my favorite acts. <laughs> I, it was something I was trying where it was like the silly song. And I basically kept trying to do this big move at the end. And I, would, I kept dropping. And so the music would stop. And then I would just weep over the dropped plate. <laughs> it was kind of was slightly avant-garde. But Are they breakable, like China plates, where you just sort of littered the... No. no? <laughs> that would have been better. Uh, would have been more, more, expensive, more messy. More expensive and messy, yeah. More messy, yeah. A little harder to make work in between acts, like a booby trap or something where there's like 14 acts, so you need to get off the stage real fast. Now, but that's Scott Neary does. I've never done that as well. That's another venue that... Uh, People work in L.A., booby trap. Yeah, if you're ever in town, if you ever come to town and you're just like, I just want to like dip my toe in the in the L.A. world, just let yeah. me know and, and I'll I'll set up all the things that, I mean, I'm sure you can set it up for yourself. Does that go for all my listeners or just me? Is that... <laughs> just... <laughs> oh, just me. Let's talk about uh, what's handy ventriloquism. <laughs> I was like, well, let's expand the repertoire. And I started doing this, this uh, act with my hand. I now know Carl Herlinger is a, another ventriloquist. He's a, he's a real ventriloquist. And he also uses his hand with the little eyeballs. And so I, I kind of feel bad. <laughs> well, isn't that like a senior Wences thing? I mean, from the, the, the early days of, it's all right, it's all right. He'd, he'd put a, like, like a napkin in his hand and... Yeah, so, well, I just found these eyeballs. I had never seen anybody use them. They were just, you know, silly, yeah. like dollar store eyeballs and i didn't realize how many people use them but i i was like oh they'd be this would be fun to do just like a really stupid learn a little bit about ventriloquism try it and then just like get beaten up by my own hand like i don't know this would be a really interesting thing to play with so i've been playing with that i still play with it sometimes i have very expressive hands so <laughs> <laughs> and, and are you still the black cat that's another one of your acts the black yeah that's that, that yeah, it's so funny. Yeah, that that act that's a, that's particularly good for burlesque, and I've done it at the Magic Castle as well, and it went pretty well. It is a bit odd; it's a bit more burlesque, and and I, I've done it at Br Brookledge a lot. They really love it there. What's your most uh, juggling oriented one? Would that be you, you juggle what five lit balls in that one or something like that, or 
I do. Yeah. Yeah. With the cat, I, I finish with five lip balls. The cat act is like, it, yeah, it's just like, it's very, like I start actually with a bit of a magic routine where I, I pull a bunch of mice out of my mouth, but it's kind of like, like the ping pong ball. You pull a ton. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah. You're sort of shoving them in and taking them out and yeah, but I did it. They with, never end. Yeah. Yeah. I did it with uh, little white mice. Oh, <laughs> cute. Yeah. So it's like, and then I gifted them to the audience <laughs> and I had in my cat suit, I had a little like cat butt that I put on my, <laughs> on my cat suit so that I could stick that in front of people's faces. That's I thought that was funny. And I also like early incarnations, I juggled, um, I made juggling balls that looked like balls of yarn and they would all get tangled wow. up. And, um, that just got, that was a little too complicated. So I, I got rid of that, but then I, then I finished it off with the juggling glow balls which is a fan favorite and i i tend to like doing that so which would make you feel better if someone said boy Lindsay's such a great juggler or boy she's so funny <laughs> wait wait what's the question well which, which would you which would you which would you rather have as a, as a compliment that oh, you're a funny. great juggler or that you're funny oh funny funny, funny. yeah juggling for me is a very private i feel always a little bit odd doing it in front of people because for me it's a very i find so much joy in pushing the boundaries of what I know how to do and that feeling between what my brain is telling my body to do and what my body can actually do. You know what I mean? So it's like, sure. Cause that's, that'd be hard to present to an audience. You like the, the challenge of juggling and the way it stretches you. Yeah. When you, when you perform, it has to be kind of like, Oh, okay. Now yeah. I have to damp it down into just what I know I won't make a mistake at. Exactly. Exactly. So I think I always juggling from is like, if I could, I would just take juggling out of my act entirely, but I'm too insecure for that. I have to have a trick. So nothing makes me feel more amazing than having an entire audience burst out laughing. So I would much rather be funny than be a juggler for sure. It, it packs a lot lighter too. It packs smaller. All right. I you know. can have a lot of jokes in the space of one small yeah. juggling prop when i was on the road in the college market i was always just like oh man there's look at these look at these uh yeah, the stand-ups stand yeah. their jackets <laughs> <laughs> right their jackets and that's it one pair of one pair of jeans and a jacket and they're yeah they travel in the world you know something in their pocket and that's about it <laughs> let's, let's talk a little bit about what you're offering now because you know in the time of covid everybody's got a a side hustle and one of the things you've been doing is, is private coaching that's I imagine yeah. online uh, over Zoom or something or Skype. Yeah. How, do you, how do you do your private coaching? I like to take something like if someone has an idea of what they want to create, right? And it can even just, it can be something that they've already been working on or it can be something that, that they're, only, they're not even sure. They're just like, I think I might want to do something about women in history and quick change act. And so let's say I have three ideas that I'm interested in doing, but I don't know which one to do. And so I'll work with the person and figure out, pull out, I'll, I'll just witness what they really want to do and help them make a choice. And then we'll work from there. Wh whatever the, you know, wherever you are in the process, whether you have an act that you're like, okay, I want to polish this up, or I feel like this could be better, but I don't know how that's my jam. I love, I love working with people on their stuff and making it more engaging, or I'm really good at seeing the potential and like tightening things up and adding pizzazz to things. So that's where my private coaching is. And what's the best way for someone to contact you? You can go through my website, lindsaybenner.com, and there's an email link there, and you can kind of get a feel for me on the website there. And let's talk a little about, about material, because this is probably something you bring up with your, your coaching uh, clients. Mm -hmm. It's very important for you to create original material, 
Do you have a particular a technique or, or way you go about that? And how does it start? It starts with just a little, a sp- like the, whatever the spark is. Like, I think I, you know, with the plate dropping act, I wanted to do something about failure. I wanted to explore that in this very, like, intense, funny way. So that's where that came from. With the cat act, I was like, I just want to create something that everybody have have all of the routines connected to what this little animal that we are all obsessed with was the cat crazy cat videos was like so mm-hmm. big at the time when I was interested in creating that. So it's like, oh, that would be fun to everybody loves a cat. So let's make a cat routine or, you sure. know, I don't know. I, I feel like it comes from a little spark and then you just kind of got to love it into reality. And I think the book of love, it wasn't I didn't set out to do something about love, but I wanted to do something that was like a silent movie. And so that's what came from that for, for whatever reason. So it was chapters and, and uh, progressions and it just kind of all, it's just all fit together. I think you used the right word. Spark is a good word. Mm-hmm. Inspiration, that, that momentary glimpse of, oh, there's something here. Yeah. And sometimes having someone to help you mold that, they can't always find that spark for you. But yeah. they can help mold it through their experience. Say, oh, there is something here. And this yeah. is the way you could kind of bring it to life. So that's a very valuable uh, a tool you can you can offer performers. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, I, and I think sometimes when you have someone listening to what you are working on from the outside, they can spot where you're more into things in a way that you almost can't. Do you know what I mean? Like, sure. As you're kind it's of like therapy almost. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> you keep coming back to the cat idea. What, what about it intrigues you, you know? <laughs> yeah, creative creative therapy. Well, let's talk a little bit about the future now. We've come to the end of the podcast. Okay. Uh, we're in a kind of a, a, a strange situation. It's the first week of 2021. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, we're dealing with the tail end of the pandemic, and we all have a lot of hopes for the future. Where do you <laughs> see your future going, and especially your future in juggling and entertaining? You know, I have great hopes of having an opportunity, like right, right before I got pregnant with Cosmo, I had started auditioning and started putting my hat in the ring in Vegas. Okay. And so, um, I'd really love to do a show in Vegas at some point. I feel like that when, once things start opening up and that becomes a possibility, that would be so fun and shake things up a bit. And, and I, I mean, I'm just dying to have a, a regular <laughs> schedule of a job and have something that's a little bit more consistent, especially with the kids. That would be my hope for, I don't see that happening anywhere sooner than the fall, but that would be an amazing thing to happen this year. So we'll we'll put that thought out into the world that uh, there's a show space looking for you. There's a show that's, (laughs) that's a great show that's already been uh, award nominated and and well-received. So if there's someone out there who can put those two things together, especially in Vegas, which is uh, a tough, tough city to produce shows sure yeah everything's going to be different so we're all just going to be figuring it out together well what do you think about the future of you in the juggling as a female do you think that you'd want to come to some juggling festivals or is that something just not really on your map as far as the social aspect of festivals not really on my map i again like i i feel more it's always Mm -hmm. been on my bucket list to do a european juggling festival that sounds like it has a, a certain Je ne sais quoi. <laughs> the romantic quality that the IJ in the in the the hotel in Cedar Rapids just isn't. Uh, well, I, <laughs> I've heard it's a little corporate in America going to juggling conventions, and and I've heard it's it's kind of more like the hippie fun town going to the European juggling conventions. So I I've always been curious to see what that would be like to do that. I'm kind of I get a little socially anxious, so I think that's why I've stayed away 
for the most part. Well, curiosity is a spark unto itself. And yes. so if that if that dream is there and if you keep coming back to it, yeah. then I think it's important to you. Yeah. See how I did that? See how that therapy uh, hey. aspect came into play or worked it back around? So Call back. <laughs> Call back. Well, hey, thank you so much. This has been really, really fun to catch up. Yeah. We briefly met in, in Christchurch. I was there when you street performed. And uh-huh. I was always very impressed with you at Pier 39. And it's been okay. great to see you have the success. And especially the Magic Castle and places where I know they're very, very choosy sure. about, about who they like and, and what works. And I'm glad that you work there and you're having such success. Thank you. Thank you, Daniel. It's nice to, I'm, I'm honored to be on your podcast. You're, 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 you're one of you and your partners act in, what was the name of that? It was in San Francisco. It was before I'd ever done a street show. Pete Sweet was like, he was Peter Aidney at the time. And he was doing his, anyway, I just remember you, you guys performing at this convention. It's like, what was it? It wasn't, was it Motion Fest? Or yeah, was- there was one there they had in kind of a weird converted hotel. It was yeah. something they called Motion Fest. Not to be confused with Moisture Fest, which I'm sure you've done in Seattle. Was it Motion Fest? Yeah, it was Motion Fest because they had a, a big show where all the teachers, uh, yeah. instructors did a show at the end. I remember, I remember going over quite well. <laughs> so. I remember watching you guys and just being like, wow, these are it. <laughs> these guys are it. They're on the next level of, you know, these are the big, these are the big kids. Like you, I'd rather be, be considered funny than to be considered a great juggler. So you guys were both, which was, that was the most incredible thing to see is that, that combination of both being super funny, great material and very high skilled as well. That was so cool. And I didn't, I had never done a variety show at that time. So I was very inspired. So yeah, I'm very honored to um, have been invited to be on your podcast. So thank you. I appreciate the kind words and I appreciate you being on the Drop Everything podcast. Thank you so much for gracing us with your presence, Lindsay Benner. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you. I hope you enjoy Drop Everything podcast number 91. A big thanks to my special guest, Lindsay Benner. Good luck, Lindsay. Hope to see you sometime soon at the Magic Castle. All right. Go check out Juggle.org to find out about the IJA, the world's greatest group of jugglers. The IJA. Information can be found at Juggle.org. Check out the Ring Dama at Floatoys.com and Alex the Great, my novel available at Amazon.com. Now go out there and drop everything, except when you're juggling.